So I was reading this week uh, a book, and I came across the story of this guy named Gilbert Tahabani. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name. He's from Bonga, uh, Baroni. And uh, he now lives in Austin, Texas. He is an elite runner, and he's an elite coach. And he was such a great runner that he was, when he was in junior high, he ran in the Baroni National Championship in the men's division, and he won the 400-meter and the 800-meter dash. This guy was a tremendous runner. He was also a member of the Tutsi tribe, and there was a competing tribe. And one day at his high school, he saw some commotion going on, and the people from this competing tribe came, and they took all those in his tribe, and they killed a lot of them, and they beat more of them, And then they took all the ones who were still alive and put them in a building and started the building on fire. Gilbert was lying for nine hours under burning bodies. Nine hours. And finally, he was able somehow to escape. He he ran to the nearest hospital, and there he was safe. He was the lone survivor of his tribe. And in his book, he talks about coming to the United States, and, and he ran track at Abilene Christian. He was a six events. He won, was an All-American in. And he talks about in his book, this book titled, uh, A Voice in My Heart, Genocide, Survivor's Story of Escape and Faith and Forgiveness. The faith that he had to go through everything he went through. He still has the scars. If you look at pictures of him, his arm just still has the burn scars from that time that he was attacked. And the forgiveness that he placed in his heart for those who had hurt him. I was amazed when I read that story. Uh, a, a man who carries uh, scars, but because of his faith in Christ, is able to forgive and live a life of freedom and, and to, keep, to keep running. And I wondered about us. How, how about you? Are, are there any scars from your past or maybe in the present that are keeping you from running? Are there any scars that are holding you back? Well, what's keeping you from being everything God intended you to be. God put us on this earth not just to suck air, but he put on us on this earth for a purpose, for a reason, to do something tremendous for him, to do something fantastic for him, to do something impactful for him. And he gave us gifts, and he gave us opportunities, and he gave us experience, and he put us in a country where we have all these privileges. So what, what's, what's holding us back? to do the things God wants us to do. Today I want to tell a story of faith and forgiveness, the resurrection story. And I want to spend some time looking at Scripture and going through the resurrection story as it's recorded in John chapter 20. Then I want to go back after we look at the what and look at the why of the resurrection story. So let's start. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. This gospel written by John, fourth book in the New Testament, written by John, who was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, eyewitness at the cross. He saw it all. And what's fascinating about his resurrection account is that he begins 
In the first century, in this, in this male-dominated culture, Jewish culture and Roman culture, he begins by telling the story of a woman named Mary. And Mary, early on a Sunday morning, went to the tomb. Now, from that point on, from that resurrection Sunday, the Lord's Day or Resurrection Day, that's why we celebrate on a Sunday, because Christ rose from the dead. And all over the world, Sunday is that day set apart to honor and celebrate Jesus. But for Mary, it was just the first day of the week. It was a normal day. And she came to anoint the body of Jesus with, with burial spices. Mary was from this city right here by the Sea of Galilee. This is uh, the northern part of Israel. Galilee is the northernmost province. And she's from this sea named Magdala. That's where she gets her name, Mary Magdalene. And we don't know a lot about Mary. The story's not told. But we know that some point in her life, she got involved in the occult. And at some point, she was uh, possessed by seven demons. Think about that. Think about, the, think about the torment that would have been going on in her life. Think of the life she lived, being, being possessed by these seven demons. And then one day, Jesus was in the area. He spent most of his ministry up in that northern part of Galilee. About two of his three years of earthly ministry was spent in Galilee. And one day, he met Mary Magdalene. And he changed her life. He told the demons to flee. And that day, seven demons, it says, came out of her. She was never the same. No one's ever the same when they meet Jesus, are they? From that day on, she began to follow him. There were the 12 disciples that followed Jesus, but there was also a group of women that followed as well. And she was one of them. And she followed Jesus and she watched his miracles and she heard his teaching. And she was there when he, when he, when he did all, all, all the things that demonstrated that he was God in the flesh. Then she, then she was there about a week earlier when he went into uh, Jerusalem, remember riding the donkey, Palm Sunday, we call it triumphal entry, and, and the crowd was yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were getting ready to crown him as king. And then she was there by the end of the week when the fickle crowd had turned on Jesus, and she watched probably waiting outside of a building and she, where Jesus was having those mock trials, and, and they brought him out of a building and took him to a pavilion area and they tied his hands to a post and there are two men called lictors on either side of him with whips and at the bottom of the whips the end of the whips bone fragments and and stones and glass tied and these lictors took turns beating the back of Jesus just short of death and then she watched him Mary did carry the cross to that place called Golgotha. And Scripture says she stood there. She was one of them who, while the disciples ran, she was there at the foot of the cross. Scripture even says when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and took the body of Jesus down, remember they went and asked Pilate if they could have the body. It was a Sabbath, and they had to hurry to bury Jesus. And she was there when they, when they took the body down. She, scripture says she even went and watched them wrap his body, and, and, and they put his body in a tomb. 
She may have been there. Remember, the Jewish religious leaders said, we want to guard the tomb because someone's going to steal the body. We want to guard the tomb. She probably was there when the two soldiers came and they sealed the tomb. And that day when they sealed the tomb, they rolled the stone in front of the tomb and then they took a rope uh, right here and they put the rope on the tomb and then they, they put wax on either side and they would take the seal of the emperor and seal the wax. So it was, a, it was an offense to, uh, to deal with the tomb, to violate the tomb in any way. In the Middle East, funerals and burials are often done in the same day because of the hot, humid climate and decomposition of the body takes place quickly and because of the expense of embalming. A lot of times it's the same day. I remember talking to a, a family from North Africa a few years ago, and, and they had taken a day trip. Uh, they had left in the morning. They left their dad and husband at home, and they had taken a trip, and he passed. He had died of a heart attack in the morning, and by the time they got back, he was already buried. It was over. And that's how it happened there. And so they took the body of Jesus down, and they laid him on a slab. There were these tombs. They were probably 10 by 10, a lot of them. They were hewn in the rock. And there was a slab. They put the body uh, there on, on the slab. And then they, to lessen the odor, they put burial spices on it for a while as family would come and give their respects. And then they sealed the tomb, and they waited for about a year. And after a year, uh, if the family had a, had a son, the oldest son would go into the tomb after the decomposition of the body and take the bones and put the bones in a, in a box made out of limestone, an ossuary. And then there were a lot of times in the tombs little cutouts, and they would put the ossuary there in the tomb. And then the next person who died in the family, they would put them on the slab again. Well, Jesus' body, remember, was taken down from the, from the cross, and it was almost the Jewish Sabbath, so they had to hurry. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they didn't have a lot of time, and so they did everything they could. The normal procedure wasn't finished, so that's why Mary brings spices back on, on, on Sunday morning to finish the, 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 the burial process, and she's hoping or that she can beg or bribe the, the, the guards to, to let her in the tomb. That's where we pick up the story in John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the, that the tomb, the, 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 the stone, had been rolled away from the tomb. Now, this is unusual, and, and it seems like she didn't even go in. She knows that the tomb has been tampered with. Resurrection is not on her mind at all. She thinks someone has stolen the body of Jesus. Think about what's going through her mind. She was there and saw the brutality of the Roman soldiers. She saw the hatred of the religious leaders. In her mind, someone came and stole the body for more humiliation. They probably have Jesus hanging out by one of the, hanging on a cross or impaled even on one of the main roads going into Jerusalem. So further humiliation can take place. And so Mary, look at verse 2, she runs to Simon and Peter, the Simon Peter and the other disciple who is John, and she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and John run as fast as they can to the tomb. We don't know where they are, probably not a long distance away. They run to the tomb. John was the younger man and for sure the faster man, and he gets there first. 
In verse 5, stooping to look, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. It's interesting that like, like uh, Mary, John doesn't want to go into the tomb. He doesn't know what he's going to see in there. So he's looking in. Peter finally arrives. Simon Peter followed him. He went in the tomb, and he saw linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, verse 7, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. So just think about that. They go in. They don't see the body, but they see the linen cloth there. Now this would be unusual for a grave robber to come and grab a body and not take the linen cloth. Or if the grave robber was going to rob the body without the linen cloth, it would have wadded it up and thrown it in a corner. They see the cloth there. And then the face cloth is folded up just so and placed in another spot in the tomb. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw and believed. It's interesting. When Peter sees, the word saw there means he, he observed attentively. When John saw and believed, it's a different Greek word, and it means to perceive with understanding. John began to think, could it be, could it possibly be that Jesus has risen from the dead? But again, the resurrection's not on their mind. Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. Jesus had been with them. He had told them, but they just didn't get it. When they saw the brutality of the cross and they saw Jesus die, the resurrection was not on their minds. It's interesting. Uh, maybe they're thinking what's going on. They're pondering the mystery of this. They see the linen cloth there. It seems that Jesus has come through the cloth. It seems that he's taken the face cloth and, and folded it up. And as they leave, they don't even say anything to Mary. She comes back now. Look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb. By the way, the word weeping there is not a few tears coming down her eyes or soft sobs. It is wailing with extreme grief. And so she finally goes in. She looks into the tomb. She sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been. Remember, she's telling the story after the fact to John. At that time, she is wailing, and these angels ask her, what are, you, what are you wailing about? Why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. She still thinks someone has robbed the grave. So she turns around, and she walks out of the tomb. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, the, the tomb is in an area where there's a big garden around. She thought he was just there doing the gardening in, in the morning. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and, I, and I'll go get him and I'm going to bring him back here. And then Jesus said to her, what? Just her name, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Aramaic Rabboni, which means teacher. 
just your name. In John chapter 10, Jesus likened himself to a good shepherd. And he said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. And when Mary heard Jesus say her name, she knew it was him. If you're a believer, do you remember that day when Jesus said your name and he called you to himself and he caused you to trust in him alone as the only way to have an eternal relationship with the living God? Mary must have grabbed onto Jesus in her, in her now, her, her, her wailing turning to extreme joy. She grabs onto Jesus because Jesus says in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, Jesus is, is not saying don't touch me. He's going to tell Thomas later on. Remember doubting Thomas? He appears to Thomas and he says, I want you to touch me. I want you to touch my hand. I want you to see the nail prints here in my hands. I, I want you to see the wound in my side. You, I want you to touch me. So he's not saying don't touch me. He's telling Mary, don't cling to me. He's telling Mary that you are not, I'm going to ascend to the Father, and you're not going to be able to follow me in my physical presence anymore. There's going to be something different that happens. He'd already promised the Holy Spirit was going to come. They didn't get it yet, but he's saying, Mary, you're going to have a relationship with me in a different way from now on, like all believers are. We don't get to see Jesus physically, but we know him, that he lives within us nonetheless. And Jesus tells her, Go tell the brothers, go tell the disciples, I am ascending to my Father, to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced it to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said all these things to her. By the way, this is the, this is the first of, of 11 post-resurrection appearances. Eleven times Jesus showed himself alive to the disciples. Remember, the resurrection wasn't on their mind until they saw him alive. We're going to stop there in our story today, but in the next weeks, we're going to be talking about those post-resurrection appearances all the way to the ascension. But we're stopping there today. That's the what of the resurrection. That's the what. Now, let's talk about the why. If you have a resurrection, what do you have to have? Someone who's dead, right? So the question is, why? That's the real question of the resurrection. Why did Jesus have to die? And we can talk a lot of theology and we can do a lot of things, but to put it as simply as I possibly can, the reason Jesus had to die was sin. The sin in Every human heart. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we think about sin, we, we all, we, our mind goes to things like, you know, things that make the paper, like murder, right? And adultery and lying and stealing and those big things. And then right after that, those are the hard sins we think about. And then right after that, we think about maybe some of the some of the softer sins, the not-so-bad sins like, like gossip, uh, like greed, uh, like, um, like materialism, 
softer sins. And then, then there's the hidden sins that no one sees. Our, um, our desires and our thoughts and our motives. And we break them up into different categories. But God says sin is sin. Sin is missing the mark. All sin is against him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We like to compare ourselves to others, right? So I know, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as the person down the street. We compare ourselves to others, and we just kind of hope God grades on a curve at the end. Uh, I've been listening to some uh, podcasts, great podcasts about the, about the empires of, of the world. And it starts with the Assyrians. And those guys were, man, those guys were brutal. These kings like Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser and, um, and a guy named Sargon. I mean, they had great beards. They had great braided beards. And that's cool. But they were brutal, brutal rulers. And the Assyrians would come in and, and, and to, to decimate their, their enemy, both physically and psychologically, they would take men and they would skin them alive. And then they would wallpaper their palaces with skin so that when you went in to see the king, you thought, oh, my goodness, I don't want my skin on the wall. They were brutal. But then the Babylonians came. And they were brutal, but they weren't as bad as the, as the Assyrians. And so people were saying, man, we welcome the Babylonians. They're brutal, but they're not as bad as the Assyrians. And then the Persians came. And Cyrus, remember the King Cyrus, he came and, and in Ezra and Nehemiah, he says, all the deported people, go back to your lands and, and reestablish. He let them go back and build the temple. And so he said, he was brutal, but man, he wasn't like the Assyrians. And he wasn't like the Babylonians. He was bad, but he wasn't as bad as them. And, and that's how we think of life. Compare. That's how we think of our own life. We're not as bad as the next guy. So let me ask you this. What if we had a, 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 mach, a, a machine of some sort, and, and we could hook it up to your brain, and on all these screens behind me, we could... We could show all your, uh, all your thoughts, um, all your desires, all your motives in living color, all your words, all your actions when no one else is looking. Any volunteers on that one? Not me. I mean, I would love for you to volunteer, but I'm not going to volunteer. We're sinners to the core. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 and 10 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. We know that. I mean, how many times have you, have you, have you thought a thought and then thought, where did that come from? My heart is sick. Why would I think something like that? You guys are looking at me like that's never happened to you. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, Jeremiah says. Who can understand it? Can't even understand my own heart. And then Jeremiah, God says this through Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind 
to give every man, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I'm going to say that again. God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways. You want that? To give every man according to his ways. Let's think about that. We see in Scripture that God is just. He gives every man according to his ways. He's the just God. He's perfect. He's just. And as a judge, he gives us what we deserve. The Bible says the penalty of our sin is death. Not just physical death. We'll all experience that. But, but eternal death. Eternal separation from God. So God judges us. His his wrath is poured against, the penalty of sin is poured against us. He's just, and we are sinners, and we are declared guilty, and so his, his wrath on sin is poured on us. And the Bible talks about that as being hell. The Bible doesn't blink an eye. It says, Jesus said many times, that's, that's hell. That's eternal separation from God, experiencing God's wrath for eternity. That's pretty bad news, isn't it? But here's the good news. Jesus came. And when we trust in Jesus, as the only way, not a good way or one of the many ways, but as the only way, the one who was fully God, fully man, the perfect one who paid the penalty for our sin, when we trust in Jesus, the wrath of God is poured on him. That's why Jesus died. Jesus died for your sin and my sin. And so the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus, and we trust in Jesus as the one who, who took that penalty for us, who paid the penalty of death for us, and we're covered. We're protected. We are declared not guilty, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus died on the cross and his, the penalty of sin was appeased. The wrath of God was poured on him. When Jesus said, it is finished, he said, paid in full, your sin and my sin and the sin of the world, paid in full and Jesus died and then as God's stamp of approval to say, the death of my son takes care of the sin of the world. What did he do? We celebrate it today, right? He raised Jesus from the dead. So I want to ask you a question. The choir's going to come and we're going to close in a last song. But as they come, I've got to ask you a question. Do you know for certain, I'm not, I'm not asking an if or maybe or I hope, but do you know for certain that you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone? Not as a good way, not as one of the many ways, but as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. Do you know that for certain? Let me ask you a follow-up question. If you died right now, now you may not agree with everything I said today, but we can all agree with this one, right? You're going to die. We're going to die. 
And if you died right now, do you know without a doubt, not a maybe, not a hope, not I'm going to hope my bad, my good deeds outweigh my bad, but I know for certain that I would stand before the living God. I know for certain that I've trusted in Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus, I've been, not because of anything I've done, but because of Jesus, I've been declared not guilty. Do you know that for sure? Man, that's the question of Easter. I'm gonna, uh, what I'm going to do right now is I pray a prayer, and I want to be careful doing this because I don't want anyone thinking, oh, yeah, I prayed a prayer, and now I'm in. But I want you, if God's working in your heart, and you know if he is, to use this prayer simply as a guide. It's between you and God, just as a guide. And I want to lead you in this prayer if you'd like to trust in Christ. And then if you do that, we would, I'm not going to have you stand. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. But we would love to walk with you and to help you get started on this journey. So let's pray together. Father, I stand before you as a sinner. I am guilty. I can't run and I cannot hide from you. I know that my heart is desperately wicked. I can't believe some of the thoughts I think, the desires I have, the impure motives that cause me to do even good things. Father, I know that my sin separates me from you, the eternal God, the just judge, the perfect Father. I know that whatever I would try to do, go to church, uh, go through a confirmation process, whatever I would try to do, uh, be a, give, give money away, be a philanthropist, good deeds, whatever those good deeds are, Lord, I know that none of them will, will buy a relationship with you, will earn a relationship with you. And so right now, I trust in Jesus. I trust in Jesus as the one, the only one, God in the flesh who came and died on a cross for my sin. He took your wrath on him so I didn't have to. Right now, I trust in Jesus as the one to protect me, to give me eternal life to place me in eternal relationship with you, to allow me to have this life of faith, this life of forgiveness, to allow me to run hard for you, to allow me to live a life on this earth that makes sense, that makes an impact, that leaves a legacy. This short life here, Father, I want to live it to the full. I want to run hard with you. And so today, I trust in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with you, the living God. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.